0: Lord, thank you for your promised presence here with us. We do not need more content. We need contact between our real lives and the real God on the verge of this new year. And so I pray against the works of the enemy that would want to keep us not just from hearing your scriptures read or a sermon preached, but from hearing your voice speaking to the hearts of of my friends here this morning. You are our defender, the friend of sinners, the lifter of our heads. We depend on you right now, and we ask for bread from your word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we're in Revelation 12 again, like Ken began with last week. Uh, Anyone else want to preach this one? (laughs) Just kidding. It's an incredible passage, but uh, we have to admit, it's communicating in a way that feels very foreign to us. Uh, to the original audience, though, this didn't feel foreign at all. John is using a, a cast of characters and images uh, that would have been part of the common shared cultural language for Jews in the ancient world. And he, he's writing to followers of Jesus in the late first century AD during a period of intense state-sponsored persecution against Christians by Rome, which was the the greatest superpower on earth at the time. And so this, to them, familiar imagery, tapping into their shared history and hopes as a people uh, of a child being born who ascends in power to, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter, which is a messianic reference to Psalm 2, and and the heavenly powers slaying the dragon and, and the triumph of God and his people being declared. All of that would have resonated to John's original audience in their original context, as good news. We, however, unlike John's original audience, probably won't be tempted to lose hope in the face of persecution. But listen, we will be tempted to lose faith in the face of decadence and meaninglessness. And there is good news here for us, too. It just might not be the good news that we expected. What do I mean? Well, for these first Christians and for many of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today, the stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, meaning in life tends to be clear. They have low freedom but high meaning. But when we live in a place of such overabundance, what I like to call synthetic freedom and the stakes for belonging to Jesus, or for some just life in general, feel so low, then we have high, high synthetic freedom, but low meaning. In fact, psychologists and philosophers have named the kind of society you and I live in today, a vacuum of meaning. And that vacuum has to be filled by something. We cannot help but fill it with something, anything. And so today... Entities which stand to profit from this vacuum of meaning, they, they spin up these grandiose existential narratives trying to convince us that everything that happened five minutes ago on the internet is the greatest threat to face humanity in a thousand generations. And the division and fear that's produced among us drives up their bottom line. Recently, this has been coined the outrage machine. And so as strange and otherworldly as the language of the book of Revelation may seem to us at first glance, we have our own present day apocalyptic narratives and images and characters, which forces who want to manipulate us use to lie to us and get us obsessed with a thousand things that aren't Jesus. And church, here's what I want to put before us this morning. On the day before a new year, in a stretch of several years that have been especially confusing and painful and tumultuous, in a world where many powerful forces are conspiring to quite literally capture and buy and sell your attention, your hopes, your longings, your fears. Researchers call this the attention economy. In the midst of all this, here's what I want to put before us. We do not want to be living in the wrong apocalypse. We do not want to be living according to the wrong revelation that's what the word apocalypse means a revealing and uncovering of what is most truly true about the world and all that's happening in it the wrong revelation about what really matters about who are our true enemies about what is our true destiny we do not want to be living according to lies lies about the story in which of the world in which we live lies about ourselves about all that's happening within us and around us when our lord was born 2000 years ago the whole world thought that The story of humanity and and, and even their own personal stories were about any number of things. And little did they know that the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, the true anchor of reality, the real reference point for all of history, was sleeping on his mother's chest in a nothing town of maybe a thousand people called Bethlehem, just south of the holy city. We don't want to be living in the wrong apocalypse. This kind of dynamic plays out left, right, and center at the scale of global economics and geopolitics and also at the level of local communities, friendships, families, and even within our own souls. And for as much wild, distracting speculation that has come over the years from people trying to make sense, kind of decode the book of Revelation, the truth is that it makes sense of us. This apocalypse, this unveiling of the truth about the world given by the Lord to John for the church brings clarity to many things. For one, God's people have an enemy. An enemy who, make no mistake, is defeated but who is not happy about it. Even as he is overpowered and cast out, he is throwing a tantrum and wants to cause as much collateral damage as possible on his way down. If he cannot kill God's Messiah, he will do battle against the heavenly powers. If he cannot overthrow the heavenly powers, he will attack this uh, woman in John's vision who represents the Virgin Mary, but also just God's people more broadly. If he cannot harm the woman directly, he will spew a river of lies from his mouth to try and overwhelm her. When that doesn't work, in a fit of rage, he will go off to, quote, wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. And that's the world in which we live. It was the world of John's original audience, and though the details may be different now, it is our world too. A world in which our accuser has been, quote, hurled down, but wants to take us with him in a million ways, both big and small. Merry Christmas. Welcome to church. (laughs) this heavenly woman in John's vision who is harassed and pursued by the enemy. She represents and and sort of gathers together many different figures. She is Eve, she is Israel, she is daughter Zion from the Old Testament, she is Mary, she is the church. And what I wanna focus our attention on this morning is that in the midst of the enemy's hostilities and assaults, there is a surprising place of refuge for the woman, and by extension, for us. This is what I meant by the good news that we didn't expect. It's mentioned twice in this chapter and it taps into a millennia-old fixture in the imagination of God's people as they recount his acts of redemption in history. Both times it is called a, quote, place prepared for her, which interestingly is very similar wording to when Jesus says that he will go and prepare a place for us. And the only place that that saying is recorded is in the gospel according to John, the same John that many people think wrote Revelation. And so there's likely some kind of connection there. It's a place the woman is described as flying to with eagle's wings, which is an image of God's victory and deliverance connected to his overthrowing of Pharaoh and his liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. It's a place John says that is out of the serpent's reach. He cannot touch her there. And both times, it's said to be a place where the woman is, quote, taken care of. And the word behind that translation is interesting. It can mean simply to feed, as in when Jesus says that the birds of the air neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. But in other places, it can also refer to a child uh, being raised, being reared, growing up. As in when Luke writes that Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth where he had been brought up, same word. Even more powerfully, depending on the context, it can describe a mother nursing her child, giving life and sustenance to her baby from her own body. It's an amazing image. And so what is it? What is this place that puts us utterly dependent And yet utterly safe and cared for in the arms of God like a newborn baby nursing with her mother. This place of nourishment, of maturing, of being brought up in the Lord. This place of deliverance where the enemy cannot reach us and where we are fed by God himself. Is it Eden? Is it the mountaintop? Paradise? Is it somewhere up and to the right on the glory chart? Somewhere flowing with milk and honey? No. It's the wilderness. Verse 6 The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of. And then again, starting down in verse 13 When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. Where she would be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach it's the wilderness it's the place of weakness and wandering that desperate desolate desert place, where we just feel like we're surviving, the place that is beyond us, beyond our control, beyond our our strategies or our resources, beyond our illusions about our own abilities or capacities, that place of exposure, uh, of being stripped away, stripped down, the humbling place, like Amanda preached about so beautifully a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, it is precisely in the dry and weary land where there is no water that we find birthed within us this desperate cry of the psalmist, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you. And so then the question naturally becomes, how in the world can this be good news? How can the wilderness... The place of weakness be the place of God's power and protection and care for us. How can the place that feels barren be the place of God's provision? How can the dry and weary land be the place where we are nourished and raised up? It's because, listen, it's because the greatest and best gift God can possibly give us is not the outcomes we want or the life we expected, but himself. Himself. This is the secret of the wilderness. This is the secret the persecuted church has always known. And the secret that if we are wise and want to become a people who can face anything in life with the power and joy and grace of heaven, we will learn. It's this, that when everything we thought we needed to survive, everything we thought we needed to make it in life, to feel okay, to feel like there is meaning and hope and a future for us, to feel like life is worth living, when all of that crumbles... It's precisely there that God can make himself all in all to us. And listen, this is, this is going to set us free. You need to hear this. In giving us himself, God is giving us every dream come true. Jesus is Every dream come true. And in order to receive him more fully, and in him the life we all ache for, God wants to forge within us a faith, a confidence in him, a love for him that is like pure gold refined by fire, a faith that fears no losses, that relinquishes all attachments, that hedges no bets, that is not interested in God as someone who can be, who can be sort of hired to manage our portfolio of safety nets in life, the things we really trust to make us feel okay, but a dependence, a trust, a heart that wants and waits for him, that must have him him that cannot live without Him that says, truly, your love is better than life itself. But here's the thing. If He's going to come into us like that, then other stuff is going to have to get out of the way. He is too good, too worthy, too full and overflowing with life and grace and purpose and power to occupy just one throne among many in our hearts and community. The wilderness is the place of God's weaning us from our attachments to things less than him. Lesser hopes, lesser treasures, lesser healers, lesser lovers, weaning us from what Thomas Keating calls our emotional programs for happiness, and instead getting us attached to him, the true hope, the true treasure, healer. Lover of our souls, the true redeemer of all creation, including our losses and pains and sins, the ones done against us and the ones done by us. Everything, past and future, every year we thought was wasted, everything. And so he's got to come in. Remember, we're in the Christmas season. We're celebrating that he's the incarnate God. He's the God who comes in, who wants in, who who loves us too much to not come in, all the way in. Whatever it takes. Think about the Israelites. That's what would have popped into the the minds of John's original audience as they read this. God breaks them out of slavery in Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground, being born again as a new people on the other side with a new father and a new future. And first things first, God leads them straight into The wilderness, this place of of sifting and testing to expose what is really in them, why not just lead them straight to the promised land in a fraction of the time? Because God was more committed to their eternal well-being than even they were. He didn't want to just get them out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of them. And so for those who had left the land of Egypt but still carried within themselves the spirit of Egypt... He wanted to wean them off the lies of Pharaoh and raise up a new family nourished and fed by the truth that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word, God's voice is life, is bread, is survival like the Lord references in our gospel reading for today. That's what manna, the, the, the bread from heaven was meant to do for them. Here they are in the wilderness, this place with no food or water, Beyond their ability to provide for themselves or secure their own lives. God said the manna would be there. You eat it that day, daily bread. You can't store it. You can't lock it away for a rainy day. There are no plan B's. Either God is true to what he said or we starve out here. God's word is life. Trusting him is life. And the ones who said, hey, this ain't it. Take us back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. We'll take the safety, the synthetic freedom of Egypt over the true freedom that God gives through faith in Him, even though it makes us slaves. And a whole generation didn't make it to the promised land. But the ones who were raised on the wilderness, the sons and daughters who were brought up in that place, watching God be their everything, their security, their source of bread and water and life, they were the ones who got it. And then they were the ones who could go and do things like trust God to demolish the fortified walls of Jericho before their very eyes without them lifting a finger. Do you get it? God makes us vulnerable with him in the wilderness so that he can make us victorious in faith against the enemies of his promise. And the example, the image of this given to us in Revelation 12 is this pregnant woman. And like I said earlier, one of the figures this woman calls to mind is the Virgin Mary. Mary is the first disciple. She is the paradigmatic lover of Jesus. The first one in the whole world to ever love Jesus. Now we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And when you have a child for the first time... It displaces everything else in life. Uh, Suddenly, in the span of only a few moments, you are holding that newborn baby, and you go from being someone whose life and identity was about many different things to being someone whose whole world is about one thing. I am a father. I am a mother. This is my son. This is my daughter. All of your previous categories become nothing. All of your previous ways of measuring and assigning values to things in life all of a sudden seems like it came from a version of yourself who was blind in an instant. It is this stark, before and after, threshold moment in life where the center of gravity for your soul, uh, for all your burdens and longings and joys and, uh, and loves, that center of gravity around which everything else orbits, has shifted. That's how Jesus wants to come personally into every heart here in this room and in our world at large, like Mary's newborn baby. Gloriously commanding our fullest attention. Love above all other loves. Treasure above treasures. Displacing the idols and other allegiances and affections and attachments of our lives. So that he is all in all. And this is the love, the apocalypse, the truth that breaks the ancient lie of the evil one. Because listen, if the maker of heaven and earth eternal life himself loves and knows and wants to come into us like this, then all of our self-preservation and all of our attempts to secure for ourselves the life of God apart from God himself, all of that becomes irrelevant because we have him. And if we have him, friends, we have arrived Like one pastor I heard recently put it, loving Jesus is life's greatest achievement. He is not a stepping stone. There is no next level. Loving Jesus is the best life there is. And although Satan would like to keep us satisfied with lesser things and deceive us into thinking we can live without God, the wilderness is like our own personal apocalypse breaking through our neatly constructed facades to reveal to us the truth that not only can we not live without God there is no life without God there's no such thing when the things that used to work for us don't work anymore when the things that made us feel more or less complete and stable without God get disrupted that's when, it, that's when it's God or nothing that's when we need him like air like water that's when not what he can do or what he can give us, but he himself becomes life and breath and everything to us. That's when we learn what the persecuted church, again, has always known, which, by the way, is exploding in all the places where it is hardest to be a Christian right now in the world with a vibrancy and power that we would find hard to believe and what our brothers and sisters in Rwanda can, t- uh, can testify to, that if we have him and nothing else, then we have more than if we had every desire of our heart, but no real living Jesus. And I know we could all point to multiple examples of wilderness experiences in our lives. For me, uh, the most recent was the loss of a dream that I thought specifically God gave me and led me into. You know how disorienting that is? Here I am like, Abraham, you want me to sacrifice the miracle child that you gave me? And yet it was precisely in and by that pain and confusion, which I would never have wished on my worst enemy, that God was making me able, in a way I never was before, to face things in myself that were some of the deepest core strongholds of the enemy in my soul which were cutting me off from an, ex- from an experience of God's love in places that I didn't even know I hadn't let him into yet. And here I am in this desert of the soul, crying out to him, Where are you, God? Why, why wouldn't you be causing this to succeed? I don't get it. Why, why isn't this working? Why, why does it feel like you've just completely left me? Not realizing that while I was accusing God of being absent, he was actually freeing me and loving me in ways that were, that were better than I was even capable of asking him to do at the time. Because while I was chasing ambition, even ambition for things that were good, he was chasing my heart. And going through that desert was exactly what would make me ready to receive one of the most profound works of grace in my whole life. Not getting the dream back, That was a real loss. But it was a work of grace that would expand my view and experience of God's love in ways that were literally beyond what I could have asked or imagined at that time and in ways that are carrying me today. And it's that kind of history with God that makes me stand here and say to you, look, if He can do that when we are in the desperate place, when it feels like uh, our world is falling apart, if he can make even a place like the wilderness into not just a meeting point between you and him, but one of the deepest places of oneness and bonding with him in the fellowship of his suffering between your unvarnished soul and his unfiltered love, one of the places where you come to taste firsthand that every last longing of your heart is fulfilled by his embrace, if he can do that in the wilderness then, friends, what can he do with the rest of our lives? I mean, here's the thing. He is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's time to get our hopes way up. Because if our God is this present, this real, this near, holding us like a nursing mother in and by the wilderness, then what lie can the enemy tell us that will make us afraid? Even if he does his absolute worst, listen, there is no place of dryness or darkness or death he can send us to which God has not already gone and in which God's presence will not be there waiting to receive us when we get there. There is nothing that will keep him away. There is no place to which his healing will not flow. There is no pit too low for him to descend down into. And so the enemy's lies. I mean... His weapon has been knocked out of his hand. See, here's the thing. Satan wants to make us both miserable and hopeless. Do you get that? He, he would like to make us believe both that the wilderness is an interruption to our fullness of life, which is to be avoided at all costs, and that it's inevitable. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, the, the dryness, the wandering... That's just life. And so you better cobble together whatever little cocktail you can of distraction and ambition and entertainment and relationships to try and give you something worth calling a life. You know, because it's, look, it's a desert out here and God can't be trusted. I'm here to tell you It's a lie. The wilderness around us, the wilderness within us, the works of the enemy, the terror, suffering, death, disease, war, sin, isolation, and all things that draw us from the love of God are not inevitable. Like it says, he knows his time is short and he's throwing one last tantrum on his way down. I'll tell you what's inevitable. That dragon being slain once and for all is what's inevitable. Resurrection is inevitable. New creation is inevitable. Jesus being crowned as the rightful king of all creation is inevitable. And when our enemy comes to us in the wilderness and says, look at you. Why are you still serving this God? What has he done for you? It's the wilderness that teaches us The reply of faith that will carry us through our darkest, most desperate moments until we breathe our last. That our God is not one more vending machine into which we are putting some kind of payment and out of which we are hoping to get something called a good life. He is life to us and he cannot be taken away. Even if this wilderness kills me, he will crown me on the other side as one who held fast their testimony about Jesus. And so take courage, friends. And take refuge in the wilderness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are light in the darkness. There are so many lies that control us. Would you come and shine truth right now, clarity? Would you come and expose what needs exposing? We want, we need a personal apocalypse. We don't want to live according to lies Jesus, thank you that you will personally restore everything the enemy has stolen from each person in this room. You are so worthy of our trust. For those in the wilderness, in the dry place right now, oh God, I don't just ask for water. I pray, Holy Spirit, for you to become water to them. For those of us in the longing, aching, hungry place, God, I do not just ask for bread. Would you yourself become bread to us this morning? Thank you for saving us, for delivering us from the exhaustion, the slavery of being our own security. Making our own meaning running our own lives on our own steam and that you love us so much you will not leave us alone until we see that with the eyes of our hearts. See you looking into those eyes with tears of love receiving us. Thank you that in just a few minutes we get to receive the bread of heaven the bread of life that has sustained your people in all times and all places through every kind of wilderness imaginable. We are a part of that story, and we want to be found faithful to wait for you, our worthy Savior. We love you and need you. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Amen.